Good evening, everyone. Last time we were here, we were starting Chapter 7. If you remember, the chapters are not in order. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, so that was pretty good. But then you get to Chapter 7, where we are now, and then Chapter 8. And then after that, actually, is Chapter 5, then 6, then 9, and then 10, 11, and 12. We are in Chapter 7. And again, you can tell where you are when you're reading the chapters, because typically the chapters at the beginning will say, in the reign of this king, or in this situation, or that situation, and so forth. So Chapter 7, we really just barely got started on last time. Chapter 7, as you may remember, is chronicling of Daniel's dream. He had a very special dream, and as he put it, it was a dream of the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. Now, we had talked about this, that this qualifier is very important if you understand symbology. And by the way, we have to understand symbology because Daniel is full, and it also maps into the book of Revelation. So it's very important to understand that. The four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. Now, typically in Scripture, depending on the context, when the Scriptures talk about a great sea, it usually means the sea of nations, just a, a mixture of people that cover the earth and over the different nations. And that's what it really means here. That's the sea, but what are the four winds in the heavens that are stirring up the sea? And if you look here on the statue, you have the four main components of the history of the Gentile rule over the earth, gold, silver, brass, and iron, which we discuss a lot in the book of Daniel. This is basically what the dream is about. And as we started, it talks about the symbols of lions and bears and so forth and so on. So we started parsing that because, again, we have to look at this and say these symbols map into these empires and so forth. And that's what we started with. We left off with Daniel 7, chapter 4. So we're going to start there again, and um, we're actually going to continue from there and move forward. So I'm going to read Daniel chapter 7 and verse 4. This is the lion now, and the lion is a very prominent figure in Scripture. The first was like a lion. This is this first image in this dream. And it had the wings of an eagle. Now I want you to picture this as we should. A lion with the wings of an eagle. Not just the wings of any bird, it's the wings of an eagle. And a lion having wings is something peculiar anyway. But I watched until its wings were torn off. And it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man. Now, this is an interesting vision here. It had the heart or mind of a man that was given to us. That's interesting. We're going to talk about that in a second. But what we started doing last time, and I want to continue a little bit now, is to parse what a lion means and the history of it as it pertains to Scripture. Because these symbols are very important, and secular history holds the meaning of them very well as it pertains to the Gentile rulers, the Gentile powers, the Gentile world that speaks to them that they actually point to certain things about. Like, for instance, and I read last time, and I'll read it again. Remember, the head of gold is Babylon. That's the place that Daniel was in at this point, under the uh, captivity. So listen to this. This is from the Atlas Tour website. I'll just read the letter part of it. Nowadays, Babylon's ruin... Now, again, this is a stuff from a tour website. This has nothing to do with Scripture. It has nothing to do with anything. But remember this image of the lion, which is what I'm talking about. Because this gives you a little history of Babylon. Babylon's ruins covers about 7,500 acres lying on the east bank of the Euphrates River, 56 miles south of Baghdad. The most important of the standing monuments of Babylon today are the summer and winter palaces of King Nebuchadnezzar, the ziggurat or the tower attached to it, the street of possessions, and the lion of Babylon, and the famous Ishtar Gate. Now, here's a little interesting tidbit about the lion of Babylon. What was this lion of Babylon? The Lion of Babylon, a very large statue carved in basalt, 
reminds us again that the lion was the symbol of the goddess of Ishtar, which is whom they worshipped. In the sculpture, the lion's back has marks indicating that it was meant for a precious saddle upon which the goddess of Ishtar would stand. Now, you may remember, if you studied the book of Revelation, that there is a whore that rides a beast. So you can see there's a relationship going on here. Here's a little tidbit from the uh, BibleHistory.com website. The colorful striding lion of glazed brick with its mouth opened in a threatening roar once decorated a side of this processional way, which the tour site had mentioned. The processional way led out of the city through the massive and beautiful Ishtar Gate. The procession through Ishtar Gate. It all fits. This is amazing. Named for the Mesopotamian goddess of love and war, the yin and the yang here, Ishtar, whose symbol was the lion. Each year, during the celebration of the great New Year festival, the images of the city's deities were carried out through the Ishtar Gate and moved along the processional way past 120 lines to a special festival house north of the city. Picture all of this happening in your mind in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The lion symbolizes power, and the Babylonians believed it was Ishtar that gave them their glory. Isn't that interesting? To this day, these ruins show and depict the lions with eagle's wings. By the way, I mentioned last time, I'll just mention this quickly again. When we went into uh, Iraq to get rid of Saddam Hussein, it was known, it came out, and part of it was rebuilt, that he fancied himself the modern-day Nebuchadnezzar, or the resurrected Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know which, but he was going to bring back the grandeur of this head of gold Babylonian kingdom as its Nebuchadnezzar, and he was spending a lot of money on reconstructing this processional way. And he had already recreated these glazed blue brick with the relief of the lions and, and the winged lions. So it was interesting. And this stuff is still there, I, I imagine. But it was there when that's what he was doing. Thankfully, he uh, never uh, completed his thing there. So now again, it says here in Daniel 7, verse 4, he says here something interesting. And I watched until its wings were torn off. Now picture this in your mind. Here's a lion with wings, and its wings are torn off. And it was lifted from the ground, so it had the ability to fly. Then something or someone took its wings away, but then lifted it up from the ground so that it stood on two feet. Interesting. Its ability to fly is taken away, and now it's given two feet so it can now walk. And further, it says, like a man. And the heart of a man was given to it. Think of this as we continue. It could no longer fly, but it was helped up, and instead of standing on four feet, which a lion has, it was given two feet. And also the heart of a lion, the heart of an animal, was taken out of it and replaced with the heart of a man. So now it's got two major attributes of a man given to it. Two feet, not four, no wings, and a heart of a human being. The primary interpretation is probably fairly straightforward, and you're hopefully thinking about this already. The primary interpretation is that Nebuchadnezzar started out as a beast, but at the end of his reign was given insanity. And if you've studied with us or you've studied on your own, you know that God gave him some time where he took his kingdom away from him temporarily and gave him the heart of a beast and made him spend seven years in insanity. And then he was given sanity again. So his wings were plucked, but then he was given two feet to stand back up and if you remember, all of a sudden, he had the heart of a man. He had written in Daniel about this God who is the God of gods who humbled him. 
And then he decreed in his humbleness that anybody who didn't humble themselves against his God would be assassinated. So we don't know how well that worked out for him personally, but you see the point here. And this is the point of this history given to us in Daniel's dream and documented in this book. Okay, Here's the process that's mapped out in Daniel chapter 4, which is about the warning dream that Nebuchadnezzar was given subsequent to his humbling. The alarming dream was about an overspreading tree. Remember that? There was a tree, a domain. This is another dream he had. Daniel's interpretation of that dream and the warning to the proud king. This is, this is warning him that this was going to happen. The humiliation of the king in seven years of maybe dementia. He was a beast. And then the king's repentance. And here's the heart of the man thing. And acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Interesting. There's a pastor in the early church in Rome, not the Catholic church, don't get that confused, but in the early church, the true church in Rome, named Hippolytus. And he was one of the early church fathers who lived from 170 A.D. and died as a martyr in 236 A.D. So it was pretty close to the time of the apostles. It was pretty close to the time. I think John had died in 90 A.D. But listen to this. this is just, I'm going to read you something about Hippolytus, but I want you to think about this. He was a contemporary of another church leader you might have met, an early church father, Arrhenius, who was a student of one named Polycarp. Polycarp, and this is the key, was a student of the Apostle John himself. Think of that. These men were close to the Apostles. These men were so close to the time that they were taught at the feet of Polycarp and then Arrhenius and then Hippolytus was right there. So they were pretty close to the truth here because of time, and so close to John as one of the last apostles that lived. Here's what Hippolytus said about this situation. The lion represents the kingdom of Babylon. So far, so good. The wings represent Nebuchadnezzar plucked off when he lost his mind. He was then made to stand on his two feet, where he regained his sanity, and the heart of a man was given to him when he gave glory to God. Just remember that. It's good for us to remember. It is good and health for the emotions, for your mental profile. It is health and joy down to the marrow of the bones. And I hope you feel this when you do, because I do. When I pray and I'm just thankful and I'm, and I'm worshiping God, even just talking with Him by myself, I feel welling up a joy a connectedness that you can pray and feel. And you're always connected to God if you're saved in Christ, and that never stops. But it's the special gift of beneficial joy and, I guess, a covering of joy, but it's also physically beneficial and, and emotionally beneficial. It's a calming thing to worship God. Just do it, and you'll see. You'll know. I'm sure you do. But And that's what he's talking about here. Thinking about the lion, what else could it be a symbol of? Because prophecies, obviously, don't always mean just one thing. They're layered a lot of time. So here's some symbols of the lion that can apply to prophecy, especially as we know the end times. I mean, Daniel was a long time ago before the modern-day countries, as we know them, the rising and falling of them, but as we know them exist even till today. Let's think about this. Some of these things you probably know. There is the lion, in the symbol of, which is the symbol of Great Britain. Most people are familiar with that. Now, the eagle's wings may be America, as spawned off the back the wings of the Lion of Great Britain. And you know what happened as we broke away from Britain and formed our own colonies and then the country and so forth. Also, the tribe of Judah 
lifted up from the sea of nations and brought back on the eagle's wings into the promised land. We also see a modicum of these eagle's wings in the book of Revelation during the great tribulation when Satan has been thrown to earth and he's chasing the Jews and he tries to consume them with a flood, but the Jews are taken up on eagle's wings and brought to a place of safety, which a lot of people, myself included, think is this area called Petra in this nation of Jordan. So that's interesting. Here what we want to do is we want to develop a feel for Bible prophecy. It's difficult, and in a lot of instances, it's right there. It's been interpreted, or it's easy for you and I to interpret. But even with great study, it's difficult to pinpoint everything exactly. The main thing about prophecy, either end times prophecy or prophecy in general. Prophecy is about Christ coming, prophecies of the coming salvation through a Savior, and through the line of Judah, the things that we know. All of the prophecies about everything. It's good to understand it, so how deeply intertwined all of these things are. And the key is, is how they are used by God in Scripture as a descriptor of the Scriptures. Prophecy and the symbols of prophecy, if you dig and they prompt you to dig, here a little, there a little, and understanding symbology, and as you learn and grow and moving from milk to meat, you'll find out that actually these things are not confusing. They help you interpret and as the scriptures of the Bible. And I hope many of you see that. I'm sure you do. Those of us, who, especially who studied together over the years, it's a very important thing, especially when you think of the scriptures as laid out in a dispensational model, which to me is undeniable. Let's move forward now. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 5. There before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. So now we're moving from a winged lion to a bear. Now, what are the attributes of this symbol? this bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, now it was given instruction, get up and eat your fill of flesh. What was this bear? Well, looking at the statue, this bear was probably Medo-Persia. And this would make sense even if only for the fact that we are seeing that the context of this dream is the chronological order of those empires on that statue. We had the lion, which is the head of gold. Now we have a bear, which looks like it's emblematic of the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, which, by the way, you notice when we stopped the last chapter, out of chronological order, it was already that the head of gold had been defeated. And Belshazzar, you remember the story, the handwriting on the wall, and he was found wanting, and he was gone. And at that time, the Babylonian Empire, the city was subsumed, and before you know it, they were all in the nation, and they were taken over. And then when we get back in the chronological order here, we're going to move forward to the Jews being released through this man named Cyrus. And we're going to talk a little bit about Cyrus because there's a lot of discussion about Cyrus today, especially right now as the third temple is looming and a lot of things are happening with President Trump doing what he's doing. We'll save that for another time. But anyway, so it makes a lot of sense as we look at the way things roll out here in Scripture and in time. The second century theologians say that this verse is also about Medo-Persia. And again... Our friend Hippolytus said that the three ribs in the bear's mouth indicate to the three nations of the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians, the waning of one and the rising of the other. Let's move to chapter 7, verse 6. So we have the lion and the bear pretty well defined, and their attributes are well defined too. And after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And now we have a leopard, and it's, this is an interesting one. We're going to talk a little bit more about the leopard. Because when I originally did this study a few years ago, and I studied these symbols, I found out so much history about the symbol of the leopard 
Well, you, I think you're going to enjoy this. I hope you do, because I did. It, again, the veracity of this proves Scripture because it, these symbols made Scripture to actual history and vice versa. It's, it's a marvelous thing. Anyway, what about this leopard? Well, the leopard also had wings, but he had four wings like those of a bird. Now, you notice he's, an eagle is not mentioned, and instead of two wings as an eagle, four wings like a bird. I don't know if it means it was a bird that has four wings or there were four wings that look like the wings of a bird and he had four of them. At any rate, that's what it says. This beast had four heads also, and it was given authority to rule. Hmm. So these are attributes that the other two beasts didn't have yet. So let's look at this, this leopard. Up until now, Daniel's dream referred to this lion and this bear, and now this leopard. So here, we're going to summarize this because I have it in my notes. So just to summarize it. I'm sure you just remember this. But the lion is probably, into the modern day mapping, this is really what I'm talking about, is probably Great Britain. Prophecy has one or more four types and one or more fulfillment later on. So that's what I'm trying to say here. These symbols mean something in the statue, but it also means something for the very end times too. The bear is probably Russia. And you, you know, again, the symbol of the bear is very prominent for Russia that you know today. And the leopard is probably Germany. I want to ask this question rhetorically because I'm sure the answer is going to be yes. Do you remember a character named Nimrod, uh, the Tower of Babel, and all that went on there? And we studied that in great detail, and I hope you really understand all of that and more because that started the whole system which we are in the middle of today. Mystery Babylon, the economic system, and Mystery Babylon, the religious system, and they're both working very well today. And they were trying to build a worldwide empire led by the watchers, the gods that they were trying to reach with their tower in heaven, and God confused the languages. Well, today, we're reconverging to that point. Really, language is no barrier anymore for people to get in together to do anything they want. And God said, if he didn't withhold from them then, that nothing would be withheld from them if, if rather he didn't stop them. So think of this. He was only a pause marker. Remember, he did not destroy that tower. He did not destroy those people. It languished. But we look at down at history, especially when you look at the statue, you will see that this thing is alive and well, and this is its run rate right through that statue to the end, where we are right now in this time of iron and uh, miry clay, which we'll get to later. So Nimrod was really the main driver, and the spirit of Nimrod is still the main driver of this thing and the false religions and so forth. But here's a thing that I remember learning, and you can find this out too if you're so inclined. Nimrod, history holds, and again, secular history, but secular history is true. I mean, if it's documented in a few places with no axe to grind, not trying to do anything but just document history, you'll see that the Bible's right, and history proves the Bible. But Nimrod, history holds, used to tame leopards. Nimrod was described in the scriptures as a mighty hunter in defiance in the face of the Lord. And one of the things he did, he was a great hunter of men. And that's what this Babylonian economic and religious system is here for, right? Is to enslave men in every way possible. You can see that by the systems and how they're run today and how they've been run always. It's always not to elevate men, but to enslave them. And we're getting to that point even in this nation right now. But anyway, I digress. One of the methods he used was to tame leopards and then use them at his side to hunt. Now, this wasn't to hunt men, but think of this. This technique was probably what made him such a great and legendary leader because he was able to provide for his people very well. Remember, they didn't have guns. They really didn't have bows and arrows. They may have, they may have rudimentary things like that. But he was building a city. Actually, he built more than one city. There's a couple of his famous cities that he built, Sodom 
and of course Babylon. How do you become king of a city? Well, you become the provider for that city, it's sort of like a welfare state, and then you enslave people by providing for them, and they will follow you and do whatever you want to do. And that's not the way it's going to be at the end with the mark of the beast from this Babylonian system. That you will not be able to eat, you won't be able to buy or sell unless you have that mark. But the beast has to help you. The beast has to provide for you, and he will do it under his terms. And you must agree. See? Well, there's no different then. So leopards are very efficient hunting machines. If you could tame leopards to hunt, your kill rate in a day's hunting expedition would be very high. And then you can also teach the leaders of your city under you to use leopards to hunt. And before you know it, you can feed the whole city. You see what I'm saying? That's the point. This made him a godlike figure to the people in the cities that he built. Under the symbol of the leopard, Nimrod gained power over the people of his day. And that's the point. The symbol of the leopard was handed down as a banner of pride and valor and hunting prowess of warriors and secular kings throughout history. And you have probably seen that. You can look up any source of information and you'll see that a lot of kings and, and a lot of their dynasties or, or uh, however they ruled associated themselves with leopards. They'd have leopard statues near them, sort of like the equivalent to lions, but leopard is more of a prowess to them. A lion may be regal, and that's true, but a leopard is not only a high position, but it's also a great leader or hunter, but that's the point. Here's an example of the leopard as a symbol of power. This example has little to do with the nations and peoples we are directly focused on in Scripture, but it serves to show how persistent and far-reaching this Nimrod's legacy is when it involves leopards and what I just said about leopards in history. I'm going to read you something here. The following is what was written about the history of a bronze vessel from about the 17th century from African Nigeria depicting a leopard. So again, secular history, African Nigeria, 17th century, way after all of this biblical stuff, way before where we are right now, but it involves the leopard and this tradition and symbology. So listen to this. This is a bronze vessel in the shape of a leopard from the 17th century it was found in African Nigeria. This bronze leopard is actually a water vessel used by the Oba or king when he washed his hands during ceremonies. Admired for its power, ferocity, agility, that was the word I was looking for before by the way, agility, and intelligence, the leopard became a symbol of the Oba or king. Do you see now? This is exactly what I've been talking about, exactly why Scripture is using the leopard here, and so on. Now listen to this. According to the Benin, a certain African people, I guess it must be a tribe or whatever, according to Benin thought, the leopard could strike fear into the heart of the enemy. It also was recognized as a leader in the animal kingdom. Images of leopards appeared on many objects of royal paraphernalia, reinforcing the Oba, or king's majesty, and power. Live leopards, captured and tamed. Ooh, where did we just hear that started? Way before the 17th century. Something that works, you keep doing it, right? Live leopards, captured and tamed, were kept at the royal palace, placed on leashes. This is in African Nigeria. Something that started way back when. It's not even the Bible having to tell you this. It's the history telling you this. Placed on leashes, they even accompanied royal possessions. Leopard skins, ah, 
the skin, the covering, the magical mystery covering, skin, the shroud. Leopard skins were emblems of rank in Benin. They could be only worn by the king and those who obtained his permission. Now, in your mind, I hope you're already thinking, you've probably seen in Disney movies and other movies that have kings from the days of the knights and all those, that a lot of them wore not only a crown with velvet in there and all that stuff, but they had a scepter and maybe something else. They also had a robe, and a lot of times it had, at least had a collar of leopard skin or some kind of fur with spots in it that mimic leopard skin. Get it? Got it? Good. So listen to this. When a hunter killed a leopard, he was expected to report to the nearest chief that it was a, quote, leopard of the bush, unquote, not one, quote, of the house. Like the royal art of the Benin, the leopard essentially belonged to the king, signifying his superior status. Isn't that interesting? It is also said that the leopard is the Grecian leopard. In the Daniel's dream here, it's the Grecian leopard with its four wings and four heads depicting the four generals of Alexander the Great. Now, we'll get to that later if you're not sure of the history because Daniel does speak to that. When Alexander the Great died, his four generals conquered the rest of the known world to complete Hellenizing. And, of course, the, the holy land, the beautiful land, is uh, talked about here. One thing I want to make note here, I'll make of it again. I'll make note of it again when we talk about it. But Alexander the Great, he was a very special man. And he was, how do I want to say this? He knew that he was beholden to someone or something great that made him great. And he was beholden to this power. History holds that before he died, he went back to the ruins of the Tower of Babel maybe to absorb power from it. I don't remember the exact story, but you can look that up and see. So he was connected, and he knew, and he knew, and he knew what he was connected to and why. So think about that. There are two interpretations. The more modern interpretation, even closer to us today, is that it is Germany, as the leopard was an identifier of Hitler's Germany. Think of that. With those facts and little history going on to support what the Bible says and what we need to learn from this dream. You know, I'll make a side note here. It's a good thing to be in those programs to learn the Bible in a year. I think it's great. But when you read the Bible, or anybody, not you, anybody, reads the Bible like a novel, don't expect to understand this. That's why we're told to study. We're told to study, to show ourselves approved. It's sort of like this. You go to college. You're given textbooks and you go to class. And you tell the professor of a class, you know what? I'm not going to come to class. You gave me the textbook. It's got everything in here that you're going to tell me anyway. So let me just read the textbook over the semester and then just give me a passing grade. I may even learn enough to pass some tests. Just read, remember, and regurgitate. If we studied the Bible like that, and I'm talking to people who, who know this, but I'm just saying anybody who's hearing this thereafter when this gets posted as, as podcasts, Think about it because, you know, the more we understand about God and, and, you know, he doesn't make it that easy. He wants us to work because we need to work for what's good. Work is important and it shows what you place value on, what I place value on. Anyway, while you're thinking about that, turn to Daniel chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast. 
terrifying and frightening and very powerful. Now, the descriptions of these beasts are getting more intense. And look, he said right here, the other beasts that he saw in his uh, dream so far weren't that terrifying and powerful. Well, I don't know, but this, I guess, takes the cake, as it were, because listen to what he says about it. What about this beast that, that terrified him? It was frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot what was left. Now, you look at the other, the other beasts before this. They didn't do all that much. It was more about them and their attributes. This one is like a steamroller. This one's a horrible thing. And it also says here, it was different from the former beasts, from all the former beasts. And here we go. It had ten horns. Now, you may remember, we've talked about this, you probably know this yourselves, that the horns in Scripture represent power, represent a power center. So someone that is the head of a major power or has a lot of power. But there are ten of them. So these here, and in the Amplified Version, it actually says, following this piece of Scripture, it actually, in brackets, says, symbolizing ten kings. So you have ten horns that symbolize ten kings, or rulers, or nations. The end times interpretation of the would be what? What would it be? So look at the statue here. Look at the feet. There are ten toes total on the feet that are holding up that structure, that tower. Ten horns, ten toes. Keep that in your mind. It's the revival of the old Roman Empire, and you see that it says iron and clay. It's the final resurrection of the Roman Empire, right, which is the iron. And then you have an iron mixed with clay. We're going to get into a little bit more. That's interesting, by the way. And think about it. You probably know. If you don't, we're going to get into it because it's very important. Why does God have an image here? I can see the others. You can see gold and silver. You can relate them to each other. One is more precious than the other, but gold is softer than silver. But it has more value. It's a better metal. It's got more intrinsic value, let's put it that way. Then brass is, is less than silver, but it's more useful. Applications are different. Iron is, is a lot more useful in many more applications, and it is a lot stronger, but it's the least expensive, and it also can be very brittle, depending on how it's alloyed and so forth. But you get what I'm saying here. But then they have iron mixed with clay. I'm going to give you a hint just to think about. Why clay? Why not something else? Why is an iron mixed with another metal or antimony or something? Because, well, I'll just give you one thing to think about, because I can talk about it right now, but think about this. When God made man... Of what did he make him? He made him out of clay, the dust of the ground. At some point, it may be, and we'll see, that humanity being associated with clay, physical humanity in this physical dispensation, in this physical universe, is going to be mixing with iron somehow. Well, there's a couple of different ways we can go with this, or anybody can go with this, but I just want you to start thinking about that in the back of your mind, and should you be so inclined, to start doing a little research into it yourselves between now and the next time we meet. Anyway, back to what we have at hand here. Let's go to verse 8, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8. While I was thinking about the horns, and I'm sure he had a lot to think about still in his dream, there before me was another horn, a little horn, which came up from among them. So now we have ten horns. And then this little horn starts shooting up, a little one, among this beast of iron. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. So there's a ten, ten dominions, ten kings, we'll say ten dominions. Or, yeah, we'll say ten dominions, because that's really what it is. So you have ten dominions. This eleventh comes up, little horn, 
and three of them are plucked up and removed. Why? What is that about? That's interesting. Now, this little horn, if you start thinking about this, this little horn is also very different from the others because this little horn, it says here in verse 8, had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, you remember that, I'll use this as an example, when we first looked at the first symbol, the lion, and you could see how God used that lion and gave it anatomy parts of an eagle, and then took that anatomy part away. It also was a lion that had four legs. It took those away and left him two, and gave him a heart like a man. So you see that, and we discussed this, and you know that God is transforming this beast with parts of humanity, with the parts of a man. Well, if that's the case, and it is, it looks like he's doing the same thing here. This horn, not the other ten horns, and since when does a horn have eyes? It's not even an animal. It's on an animal, but I digress. You know what I'm saying here. This horn had eyes like a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Isn't that interesting? There's nothing else said about him. He didn't have arms like a man. He didn't have ten toes like a man. He, You see something about ten toes here, but my point is, these are attributes that are very important. Doesn't say he has a nose like a man, got hair. Doesn't say anything, but he's got these two things. That's very important, obviously. So we're going to talk about that. So anyway, out from among these ten horns or kingdoms or rulers of nations will spring this little horn. Again, out of those ten toes, out of this final iron and clay, or getting into that time, the final empire of the Gentiles just before the close of history, that closes down at the end of the tribulation and before the millennium, something big is going to happen. And you know what that is. Well, that's where we are in, in this dream in history. And this is how Daniel is being given this rollout of prophetic history. And we're right at the end here. Let's turn now in this context as we're talking about this to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. Now, we're going to be getting into some calculations here. We're moving away from this dream for a few minutes because we want to calculate something because Daniel was really given some mid-range and long-range detail, the long-range detail being the end of the age and approaching that. It's interesting that God's not only going to give him more about that, but some timing, which is phenomenal. So listen to this. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. Now again, this is a lot of context, so we haven't discussed this yet. We will, but just, just think of this, and I'll explain this to you. After the 62 sevens, or 62 sets of sevens, this is a time frame, we'll talk about that. But listen to what it says. After this time period, the anointed one, now all translations should say anointed one. Some may say something different, but it's capitalized. I'm going to tell you, if you haven't guessed, and I'm sure you have, it's talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Word who became flesh among us, who shed his blood, died, and rose again. That one, that one, for the Jews and for the Gentile, the anointed one, he comes. And he says, the anointed one will what? Flourish? No. Will be cut off. The actual translation really means more in Hebrew that he will actually be killed. He will just be cut off. His life will stop short. He won't die a natural death. He will be killed, and then he will have nothing. Think about the history of our Lord Jesus Christ up until he comes back. Listen to this. In the same context, so here's a time marker. After a certain period of time, 
Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who the Jews were looking for, who we can look back to from here, the crux, the cross, the fulcrum of all time, the fulcrum of history, is Jesus Christ, that cross. So it says, so using that as a marker, and how do we know it's the marker? Because the anointed one will be cut off, he will be killed and hung on that cross. He will come away with nothing. He will not have his people with him. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that did happen, by the way, in 70 AD. But there's more. Who is this anointed one? It's Jesus. And what is meant by that he was cut off? He was put to death. What is meant when the passage states that the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary? Listen to this, and you know this, but I want you to get the veracity of what Scripture means when prophecy is laid out for us, and we understand history, we understand the Scriptures, we understand these things in just the passing phase, and we can see. It's wonderful to have eyes to see. So what is meant by this? Well, Jesus was crucified in A.D. 33, and in A.D. 70, by the way, Jesus had said this would happen, just as he had predicted, he said something specific would happen that that sanctuary and that thing would be destroyed. And I'll read it to you, Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away with when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. And this is a marvelous. This is one of the, the seven wonders of the world. This is, and this is that temple, the second temple, after it was beautified by the Herod at the time Jesus was alive, that Herod. The disciples came to him, Jesus, and said, and said hey, Jesus, look at these buildings. And, he's, and in verse 2 says, Do you see all these things, he asked? They're marveling at these wonderful things. Even if you've looked at models of the second temple, the beautified Herod's temple, even the old temple, the original temple, Solomon's temple, or Zerubbabel's temple before it was expanded and beautified by Herod, these structures were sound. There was wealth in them. There was a modicum of stature and stability. It's like nothing. You would take a, you would take a missile to knock those down, and they didn't have missiles in those days. So they're admiring all this wonder and the beauty and the stature, especially after it was beautified by Herod. Well, Jesus has to tell them, he says, look, I tell you the truth. Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And that's exactly what happened. And we're going to close here with a little bit of history. I want to read you. The Romans, under the direction of Emperor Titus, stormed and absolutely decimated the Jews the city of Jerusalem, and the temple in A.D. 70 because a rebellion was started in A.D. 66. Jesus was long gone at this point, and that's what happened. Let's see what it was like. Now, you know that one of my favorite books, I, of course I've never read it as a novel, is this. Flavius Josephus, The uh, Antiquity of the Jews and the Jewish Wars. That's the two books that are here. By the way, this book, it's not paragraph. It's just one long diatribe. He was very prolific in his writing. But let me read you what he wrote about that, just to give you a flavor of what happened in A.D. 70, and then we'll close with this. This is an excerpt of uh, Flavius Josephus. He was a Jew, but he was a favorite of the Romans. You, can, you should look up his history just to see who this man was. And he wrote and documented the history of the Jews to the Romans. So he's an expert of a portion of the Wars of the Jews, or the Jewish Wars, when the Romans destroyed the temple in A.D. 70, and here's his historical account of it, and I'll just read this to you. In the year 66 A.D., the Jews of Judea rebelled against their Roman masters. In response, the Emperor Nero dispatched an army under the generalship of Vespasian 
to restore order. Now remember, we're talking about that statue, which I don't have up on the screen right now, but this is now getting down to iron, the Iron Empire, this horrible beast, and it's going to be resurrected again. You know, the Roman Empire never died. Actually, our, our government is based on a Roman-type system, so it's coming back. It never left, so that's where we get to the iron and clay. By the year 68, resistance in the northern part of the province had been eradicated, and the Romans turned their full attention to the subjugation of Jerusalem. That year, still, it's two years before AD 70, that same year, the Emperor Nero died by his own hand, creating a power vacuum in Rome. In the resultant chaos, Vespasian was declared emperor and returned to the imperial city. It fell to his son, Titus. Titus is the engine of this destruction, to lead the remaining army in the assault of Jerusalem. The Roman legion surrounded the city and began to slowly squeeze the life out of the Jewish stronghold. This took time. They were strangling them. They set up bulwarks and sieges, and they were just stopping the entrance and exit of goods and, and things into that city. They were starving them, and they were waiting for them. They were waiting to weaken them and then go in for the kill. This is how this, and this is not the first time this was done. This is a, was a standard way of doing things in those days, before you had missiles and lasers and all the things we have today. Okay, By the year 70... The attackers had breached Jerusalem's outer walls and began a systematic ransacking of the city. They had two years of siege. They kept these people under two years under siege. They were building siege ramps. They were getting ready to bring their equipment in. They were starving them. No one could get in. No one could get out. There was a lot of hard things that happened in that city. And now they were weakened enough. And by AD 70, they were weakened enough where the attackers had breached Jerusalem's outer walls and began a systematic ransacking of the city. The assault culminated in the burning and destruction of the temple that served as the center of Judaism. In victory, the Romans slaughtered thousands. Of those spared from death, thousands more were enslaved and sent to toil in the mines of Egypt. Isn't that poetic? Some of them went back to Egypt uh, to be slaves. Others were dispersed to arenas throughout the empire to be butchered for the amusement of the public. The temple's sacred relics were taken to Rome. By the way, if you've heard of the Arch of Titus in Rome, the relief shows the menorah and other things being taken as booty back to Rome. You can see that. Look it up today. You'll see it. It's there. It's still there. The uh, Arch of Rome and, and uh, the Arch of Titus in Rome. The temple's sacred relics were taken to Rome where they were displayed in celebration of the victory. And again, that Arch of Titus will show you all of that. It's fact. The rebellion sputtered on for another three years and was finally extinguished in 73 AD with the fall of the various pockets of resistance, including the stronghold at Masada. And I visited that area in Israel. What a horrible thing to be there to see the remnants of it. It's amazing. Listen to this. The Jews let out a shout of dismay that matched the tragedy. Can you imagine the horror? Those people were screaming and yelling and wailing, gnashing of teeth. Our only first-hand account of the Roman assault on the temple comes from Josephus. Josephus was a former leader of the Jewish revolt who had surrendered to the Romans and won the favor of Vespasian. So you could say he might have been a traitor. Look at the goodness that came out of that. In gratitude, Josephus took on Vespasian's family name, Flavius, as his own. That's why he was called Flavius Josephus. 
The rebels shortly after attacked the Romans again after this and clashed, followed between the guards of the sanctuary and the troops who were putting out the fire inside the inner court of the temple. The latter routed the Jews and followed in hot pursuit right to the temple itself. This is about the siege of the temple now. Then one of the soldiers, without awaiting any orders and with no dread of so monumentous a deed, as urged on by some supernatural force. And by the way, the uh, Idumeans were there cheering them on. And you know who the Idumeans are today? The Edomites, the Palestinians. Just think of it. And they were chided by God for being there as, and laughing and carrying on and loving the fact that their cousins were being destroyed. The people of Isaac versus the people of Ishmael who feel they got ripped off, and they still feel they're getting ripped off. As urged on by some supernatural force, can you see the Antichrist in any of this? What's going to happen when he comes? Snatched a blazing piece of wood and, climbing on another soldier's back, hurled the flaming brand through a low golden window that gave access on the north side to the rooms that surrounded the sanctuary of this temple. As the flames shot up, the Jews let out a shout of dismay that matched the tragedy. They flocked to the rescue, with no thought of sparing their lives or husbanding their strength, for the sacred structure that they had constantly guarded with such devotion was vanishing before their very eyes. No exhortation or threat could now restrain the impiety of the legions, for the passion was in supreme command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled down by their companions. Others, stumbling on the smoldering and smoke-filled ruins of the porticos, died as miserably as the defeated. As they drew closer to the temple, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's orders, but urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The rebels were powerless to help. Carnage and flight spread throughout. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered where they were caught, right there. The heap of corpses mounted higher, and it sounds like the Holocaust, doesn't it? The heap of corpses mounted higher and higher about the altar. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps, and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. When Caesar failed to restrain the fury of his frenzied soldiers, and the fire could not be checked, he entered the building with his generals and looked at the holy place of the sanctuary and all its furnishings, which exceeded by far the accounts current in foreign lands and fully justified their splendid repute. He was amazed at all the wealth that was there. As the flames had not yet penetrated to the inner sanctum, but were consuming the chambers that surrounded the sanctuary, Titus assumed correctly that there was still time to save the structure. He ran out, and by personal appeals, he endeavored to persuade his men to put out the fire. Instructing Liberius, a centurion of his bodyguard of lancers, to club any of the men who disobeyed his orders. But their respect for Caesar and their fear of the centurion staff, who was trying to check them, were overpowered by their rage, their destitution of the Jews, and the utterly uncontrollable lust for battle. Most of them were spurred on, moreover, by the expectation of loot. This is a very wealthy temple. Convinced that the interior was full of money, and dazzled by the observing that everything around them was made of gold, but they were left forestalled by one of those who had entered into the building, and who, when Caesar dashed out to restrain his troops, pushed a firebrand into the darkness into the hinges of the gate. Then, when the flames suddenly shot up from the interior, Caesar and his generals withdrew, and no one was left to prevent those outside from the kindling blaze. Thus, in defiance of Caesar's wishes, the temple itself was set on fire. 
While the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered it, and countless people who were caught by them were slaughtered. There was no pity for age, and no regard was accorded to rank, children, and old men. Laymen and priests alike were butchered. Every class was pursued and crushed in the grip of war. Whether they cried out for mercy or offered resistance, it didn't matter. Through the roar of the flames streaming far and wide, the groans of the falling victims were heard. Such was the height of the hill and the magnitude of the blazing pile that the entire city seemed to be ablaze. And the noise, nothing more deafening and frightening, could be imagined. There were the war cries of the Roman legions as they swept onwards in mass, the yells of the rebels encircled by fire and sword, the panic of the people who, cut off above, fled into the arms of the enemy, and their shrieks as they met their fate. The cries on the hill blended with those of the multitudes of the city below, and now many people who were exhausted and tongue-tied as a result of hunger when they beheld the temple on fire found strength once more to lament and wail. Perea and the surrounding hills added their echoes to the deafening din, but more horrifying than the din were the sufferings. The Temple Mount, everywhere enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base, yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, and the numbers of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over the heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. That's what happened in A.D. 70. I don't know if, if you really understood the veracity of what had happened. And really, when Jesus said that not one stone was left upon that temple, that was the end result of all of this. Look what happened to those people. And what's going to happen again when that little horn, that little horn comes up in the end? That temple is going to be rebuilt. The third temple is coming very soon. You know that if you've been studying and watching. That third temple is going to be desecrated. And we're going to see about Daniel and the desecration. We haven't talked about that yet, Antiochus Epiphanes. But the same thing is going to happen. And the horror, the horror that's going to hit the Jewish people and the world when he finally moves into the temple in the middle of the tribulation, claiming he is God. And then comes the fourth temple in the millennium. And those of you who studied with me know that there is going to be a fourth temple. If you don't know that, read the book of Ezekiel. After 38 and 39, where the tragic war, where Israel's invaded and God saves them from sure death, in chapters 40 to 48, the whole thing is about the millennium when Jesus Christ comes and rules and reigns and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. He will build a fourth temple. David will come and be the prince. There'll be all of the land around the temple given to the 12 tribes again. And that is when we will be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. But until then, the next thing on this calendar in this prophecy is this little horn. So we have to talk more about him. And we will. So that's the end of the Bible study for tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for joining. Have a great night, everyone. And shalom, shalom. In the world of Ain Shalom. Good night, everybody.